The World Up Front is an international affairs podcast, interviewing leading minds on topics of global importance, bringing to light the events, ideas, and trends shaping today's world. I'm your host, Alex Betley. Today, we're going to talk about de-dollarization. Over the last month or so, the word has cropped up just about everywhere, with academics, business people, and policy wonks alike offering their two cents as to whether the U.S. dollar's role as the world's dominant international currency is coming to an end. To discuss this topic on our first ever episode, I'm joined by Professor Benjamin J. Cohen, Professor Cohen is Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he was a member of the Political Science Department for 30 years, recently retiring in 2021. Professor Cohen was educated at Columbia University, earning a PhD in economics in 1963. He has worked as a research economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and previously taught at Princeton University and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, Tufts University. At UC Santa Barbara, Professor Cohen was the Louis, the Louis G. Lancaster Professor of International Political Economy. In addition, he has been a visiting professor at Harvard University, University College London, and the Institute of Political Study, otherwise known as Sciences Po, in Paris. Professor Cohen has won numerous awards and in 2000 was named Distinguished Scholar of the Year by the International Political Economy Section of the International Studies Association. A specialist in the political economy of international money and finance, he is the author of 18 books, including most recently Rethinking International Political Economy. In 2021, he published a memoir of his six-decade career entitled Lucky Jerry, The Life of a Political Economist, which I can highly recommend. Professor Cohen, thank you for joining the world up front. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to our conversation. So let's get right into it. You're one of the foremost experts on the dollar. Do you mind just commenting a little bit on what de-dollarization means and why we're hearing about it right now in particular? Uh, De-dollarization, of course, is the negative of dollarization. Uh, Dollarization means the use of national currency for international purposes of various kinds, as in a trading currency, that is to say a currency for the invoicing and settlement of trade transactions, an investment currency, uh, a reserve currency for central banks, uh, and an anchor for exchange rates. There are a total of six major functions that an international currency plays. And no currency is more international uh, in its use than the U.S. dollar. De-dollarization simply means uh, that uh, there is a reduction in the use of the dollar for any or all of these various purposes. De-dollarization means that people have, for one reason or another, become dissatisfied with the dollar uh, and are seeking to uh, find an alternative for these various functions. It, it's very interesting. Do you mind commenting on why right now we are hearing about de-dollarization? Um, for example, the dollar has served, uh, you know, as the leading international currency since about the 1950s. 
why now might people, or sorry, rather countries be looking for alternatives to the dollar? Actually, the dollar's uh, role as a dominant international currency uh, goes back to the 1920s and 30s, to the interwar period. Um, and um, there have been periods when people thought that the dollar was uh, going to go into decline uh, for various and sundry reasons. As early as 1959, a Belgian-born American economist named Robert Triffin uh, predicted that that was the end of the dollar. Uh, and some dozen years later, uh, Charles Kindleberger, a great authority at MIT, uh, said the same thing, the dollar is through as international money. Uh, but somehow the dollar continued to uh, uh, dominate, uh, continued to be the by far uh, favorite of international markets as well as central banks. We, we could go into why that's the case. Uh, but um, uh, the fact is that uh, a de-dollarization is something that has been predicted from, from decades, literally decades. Um, every time a, a situation emerges where there's some threat to the usefulness of the dollar for any or all of the roles of an international currency, we hear talk about de-dollarization. The most recent round of conversation about de-dollarization is due to Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. What's the connection? The connection is that um, the United States and its allies in Europe and Japan and South Korea all agreed to penalize uh, Putin and his friends with economic sanctions. And, and among the most important of these economic sanctions uh, have been measures to deprive the Russians, the Russian government and the Russian oligarchs, to deprive them of access to the dollar. Uh, they have been uh, sanctioned directly and indirectly uh, by the U.S. government. Uh, the um, uh, fact is, of course, that the Russians and any other country that might feel vulnerable to similar sanctions by the U.S., countries like North Korea, uh, Iran, Venezuela, uh, these uh, countries have a, a very natural reaction. Let's see if we can find some substitute for the dollar. Let's see if we can uh, find something that will enable us to continue to uh, trade internationally, invest internationally, hold central bank reserves and the like, uh, without fear of being sanctioned uh, by the U.S. government. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a natural reaction, uh, and uh, one can't blame them for looking for an alternative. Uh, the question, of course, is uh, will they find an alternative? But that's another question. And that's and that's exactly what I was going to follow up on. So so what's the rub? Um, if this has been a concern of various countries for um, a long period of time, why not uh, just find an alternative? Because the conditions that are required for a currency to serve international functions as a trade, investment, reserve, anchor whatever, um, the, the attributes that are necessary are not easy to achieve. The dollar didn't achieve its role as the number one international currency arbitrarily. The dollar achieved that role because the U.S., U.S. financial markets uh, and, the, and the dollar together 
uh, meet certain standards that no other currency can. Uh, what would those be? It would be um, among them. Uh, the U.S. used to be the, the, the largest trading nation in the world. Now it's second to uh, uh, China. But still, uh, the dollar is useful, first of all, because it, it is, in fact, the currency of one of the largest trading economies in the world. Uh, secondly, uh, the dollar is um, uh, based on financial markets that are broader, deeper, more resilient than any other the markets for any other currency in the world by far. The U.S. When we talk about the U.S. dollar and foreign individuals or companies or central banks holding the dollar or using the dollar as an investment medium or a reserve currency, we're talking about uh, we're not talking about dollar bills. We're talking about assets denominated in dollars. And the markets for assets denominated in dollars are by far the biggest in the world. They offer the greatest liquidity. They offer the greatest depth, breadth, and resiliency. They, they offer something that no other country can, uh, which is that they are uh, completely available and easily bought and sold uh, without fear of uh, major loss of value. That's what we call li liquidity. The, um, uh, these uh, these characteristics are not easy to duplicate, and once a, a currency comes to be used uh, for all these purposes, because it has those attributes, that currency will continue to be used even after there is some fading of those conditions. That's what happened with the pound sterling, for example. The pound sterling was the dominant currency of the 19th century, dominant until the First World War. During the interwar period, uh, Britain's economy faltered. Uh, it uh, began to fail to meet many of the criteria that are needed to make a currency attractive. And yet the pound sterling remained an international currency until the 1970s. Uh, it, there's an inertia. Once a currency plays this kind of role, network uh, economies dictate that people will continue to want to use that currency. The U.S. Uh, still maintains the biggest financial markets in the world. It's still a major trading power, et cetera. And that's the reason why uh, the dollar continues to be popular. And it will continue to be popular even if there is some further decline in the role of the United States as a trading nation or uh, the role of the dollar for various purposes. Well, you've you've brought up um, China and Russia both in different instances. There's been a lot of talk uh, in the press um, about the BRICS nations uh, forming a potential what one foreign one columnist in foreign policy called a, a BRIC currency, basically. And I know Lula da Silva was in Beijing recently and had something to say about that. I'm just kind of curious to know if you think um, this this group of countries, you know, the BRICS being um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, if, if this is something that the United States and others should, should take seriously or is more just rhetoric? Uh, I'm much inclined to the view that it's rhetoric more than anything. Um, one can sympathize with, with the BRICS and with others as well, um, that they um, uh, are in a position of needing to have a currency like the dollar uh, 
but they can't find an alternative to the dollar. That's the big uh, uh, puzzle for them to solve. Right. Uh, they, um, uh, I remember uh, a few years ago, it was during the global financial crisis, China at that time had nearly $4 trillion in the reserves of its central bank. $4 trillion, that's a lot of money. That was about 40% of the total of reserve currencies held around the world. Um, and there they were. They were stuck with it. Uh, during a major financial crisis, they were at the mercy of the United States. Uh, and one of their uh, leading officials made a public statement in which he said, we hate you guys. <laughs> we hate you guys because you, you have all the power, but there's nothing we can do about it. We still need to use the dollar. So it's not right. surprising that the BRICS would be looking for an alternative. Uh, since um, Vladimir Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine, his special military operation, quote unquote, right. Uh, the um, uh, they have been reminded again of why they might hate the dollar and, and, and but feel they have no choice but to continue to use it. So of course they're looking for an alternative. The closest they've come is in an arrangement that Russia has worked out with China uh, to settle. Uh, uh, oil trade between Russia and China uh, in Chinese renminbi. Um, but it's a very limited uh, proposition and it's, uh, it gives Russia the renminbi in exchange for Russian oil. Uh, but then what can the Russians do with, that, with those renminbi? Uh, they, they would like to be able to buy things from Europe or the United States or Japan Right. You can't do that with renminbi. Uh, they can't do it with renminbi. Uh, I've always been a skeptic myself about the BRICS, which started as a, a somewhat tongue-in-cheek idea proposed by an investment banker in London back around 2005, I think it was. Um, originally, there were four BRICS, Russia, China, Brazil. And um, what am I missing? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Brazil, Russia, India, oh, India. China, yeah, South India, Africa. India. Yeah. Brazil, Russia, India, China. They added South Africa later because it was pointed out that oh. it was bad publicity to, um, to, to not have somebody from Africa. So they chose the right. country with the biggest economy. The only really distinguishing characteristics of these countries is their big size. Uh, they, right. they otherwise have very little in common. Uh, China, the world's greatest uh, manufacturer and I guess the exporter of manufactured goods combined with Brazil, a country that sells um, uh, mostly primary products uh, sure. uh, rather than manufactured products. Uh, India, which is a, much more important in international services than it is in international uh, trade goods. Uh, and so on. Right. You, you, you're talking about a, a group that has really very little in common other than a desire to uh, to be less dominated uh, by uh, the U.S. dollar. Uh, sure. The, um, uh, the fact is that they, ha they talk a good game, as do others, uh, the Iranians or the, even the Europeans for that matter. Uh, they talk a good game about looking for an alternative, 
but it's a tribute to the size of U.S. financial markets, the size of U.S. trade. Uh, it's a tribute to these characteristics that no matter how much these countries talk about finding an alternative to the dollar, uh, they, they find themselves unable to actually achieve that. Sure. Well, you, rather than thinking about them as a grouping, then if I might just uh, prod you a little bit, what about China? Because it looks like China is now trying to settle uh, more trade or do more trade invoicing and settlement in renminbi. Well, um, this has been going China on for about is... 15 to 20 years now. Uh, started around 2005, China began a determined campaign to uh, uh, promote the use of the renminbi uh, as an international currency, precisely because they wanted to have some of the benefits that the U.S. gets from the internationalization uh, of the dollar. Uh, again, quite understandable. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the campaign for the renminbi took a hit around 2015 when there was a sudden outflow of capital from, uh, from China, clandestine mostly. And the Chinese had to spend as much as a trillion dollars, 25% of their reserves, uh, to stabilize their currency. Um, they, uh, they, they continue quietly to build some of the necessary architecture, financial architecture, to support uh, an international currency. But they have a long, long way to go. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. Um, China's renminbi today um, accounts for about 2% of global central bank reserves. The dollar, around 60%. Uh, 2%, 60%. Not exactly, uh, it's, it's not exactly a situation where the renminbi poses a serious threat. The same is true in, in measures of uh, exchange market use. Uh, it's about... 60% to 20 uh, to 2%. Uh, renminbi is, is way back in the pack. The second most popular currency after the dollar is Europe's euro. Um, and uh, the euro uh, counts for uh, something like 20% of reserves when the US dollar represents 60%. Um, the, um, uh, the, the euro when it was created, people thought it might actually become the major challenger to the dollar, um, but it never happened. Uh, I wrote an article not too long ago that had the title of the one and a half currency system. Um, That's <laughs> about the relative size of uh, the, the, the euro's share of international transactions relative to the dollar share of transactions. The big problem for China is very is a very simple. They have a dilemma. Uh, they know everyone knows uh, that the renminbi will not become a major international currency until China is all able to offer a capital market comparable to that of the market for the dollar, um, for the dollar-denominated assets. Right. And in particular, the large size of the U.S. Treasury market. Now, the um, uh, the Chinese are they would like to be able to encourage growth of their markets, 
but it's not just a matter of development of their markets. It's also a matter of the opening of their markets. But they don't want to open their markets. They don't want to open their markets because if they do, and if they allow free movement of money in and out of the country, they will, to a degree, lose control of their financial sector. Uh, they, um, uh, and the Communist Party of China doesn't want to do that. Communist Party of China uh, puts the highest possible priority on maintaining political and economic stability in China. Uh, they want to avoid volatility, uncertainty at all costs because they, they've read the history right. books. They know that the history of China, over 2,000 years of history, uh, China declines when there is instability and uncertainty uh, and the, the country begins to uh, suffer as a result. Uh, they want to avoid that. Uh, they want, uh, how do they avoid that? By maintaining control over their financial markets, keeping their markets carefully closed so that money cannot easily flow in and out vis-a-vis um, -vis the rest of the world. Uh, but they know that there's a price to be paid if they keep the markets closed in this way, and that is that it will slow down the development of the renminbi as an international currency. Okay. So as long as they continue to prize stability above all, uh, they will continue to control their markets. And if they continue to control their markets, then there will be uh, very little development of renminbi as an international currency. So would you say then that they're very much playing a long game on this front? Oh, there's no chance, no, no question that, that it's true. Right. Uh, that, that is, in fact, how China has worked ever since the end of the Mao Zedong period. Uh, right. And it was certainly the philosophy of Deng Xiaoping, uh, who right. uh, talked about crossing the river cautiously by feeling for the stones, yes. et cetera. Yes. Uh, but, you know, long can be very long. Right, right. And so this kind of gets into one final question on this topic, and then hope uh, I hope to turn a little bit to your most recent book on uh, international political economy and the state of the field. But um, talking about long games, uh, you, you've written recently uh, in an article, actually, for the Fletcher Security Review that uh, I was happy to work with you on, that um, the threat to the U.S. dollar is not so much a wolf at the door, but more about termites kind of in the woodwork in a, in a slow decline. And given you're talking about China's long game, I'm kind of curious of your view now on the U.S. dollar and its sort of long-term viability. Well, I still feel the same way. The dollar will remain the dominant currency, uh, in my opinion. Uh, we're getting into prediction now, and uh, my crystal ball is, <laughs> is, is no clearer than anyone else's. Uh, but my my best sense is that the dollar will continue to dominate, uh, but given all the incentives that the Chinese and the other BRIC countries have, all the incentives that the Europeans have, and so on, um, to find an alternative to the dollar, um, I'm, I have no doubt that over time, this will nibble away at the dominance of the dollar. Uh, and there will be a certain amount of in, uh, improvement in the use of the euro, a certain amount of improvement in the use of the renminbi, and so on and so on. Uh, and so uh, I have 
picture that I have in mind is one where the, the dollar's dominance is sustained, but slowly, slowly declines. Uh, now, I'm not a young man, uh, so it's easy for me to say uh, that's the you know, that's the scenario that I envision for the rest of my life. Uh, but <laughs> you have you're, you're going to live a little longer than I am, so I and I'm I'm reluctant Let's... to make any predictions about what life is going to be like by the time you get to be my age. If I if if I could make it that long, I would be very very proud of myself. I have to say, um, that's great. Okay, so then, and I should have probably mentioned this in the intro. Um, turning to your most recent book, which I think is really interesting, and hopefully we can talk a little bit about that book. And maybe you know, I know one portion of the book is discusses the relationship between IPE and or otherwise international political economy, otherwise known as IPE as an academic field to, to policymaking. And so uh, the book uh, is, is called Rethinking International Political Economy. And um, you recently retired. You were in the academy for 50 plus years. Why did you write this book now? And um, if you don't mind me asking, you know, what are, what are some of your concerns with the field of IPE? You know, maybe if you could briefly even just say for, for listeners what IPE is. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, um... To, for the benefit of those uh, listening in who aren't familiar with trends in the academic world, uh, international political economy, or for short, IPE, or what some in Europe would prefer to call GPE, global political economy, it's really the same thing. Uh, IPE or GPE uh, represent an academic field of study that tries to combine the insights of the discipline of international economics and the discipline of international relations or international politics. Uh, until the 1960s, uh, these were treated as two very uh, uh, different disciplines, uh, international economics, international politics. Specialists in one had very little to say to specialists in the other. Until the 1960s, when a generation of scholars I was privileged to be included uh, began to experiment with attempts to merge the two into what we came to call IPE or GPE. Uh, the field took off and, and has become a well-established uh, field in the academic world now, uh, the field of IPE that um, combines the, the insights of those two disciplines. Uh, a few years ago, uh, when I was first beginning to think about retirement, uh, I realized that my generation, the, the, the first generation of, uh, of the new field, the modern field of IPE, uh, uh, my generation was beginning to leave the field. They were, some were beginning to leave academia, others were beginning to uh, uh, leave life. Uh, and it seemed to me that somebody ought to do a study, uh, to sit down and think about, reflect upon the birth of the field, the development of the field, have something to say about where it might be going. And I did that in an earlier book uh, called International Political Economy and uh, uh, Intellectual History. It was published by Princeton University Press in 2008. And um, that sort of uh, uh, got me started thinking about the field in the broadest possible terms. 
what it's accomplished, uh, what it has failed to accomplish, what it might accomplish. Uh, and that finally ended up with this book uh, that was published in what, 20, 2019, I can't remember, um, <laughs> called Rethinking International Political Economy. Uh, my purpose was to identify what I see as problems with the field. I, I of course, begin by uh, itemizing the accomplishments of the field, which are spectacular. Uh, uh, to to you know, take a, a, a two disciplines like international economics and international politics and forge a, a union or a merger of the two uh, and to achieve to the point where we now have journals dedicated to the subject, academic positions dedicated to the subject, uh, conferences and workshops dedicated to the subject and so on. It's, a, it's an enormous accomplishment. Uh, and we've learned a great deal uh, about how the world works. Uh, but there are problems with the way the field has developed. Uh, and it seemed to me that I was in a position to be able to make some suggestions about what those problems are and what could be done about them. And that was the purpose of rethinking, with the rethinking book. Uh, I identified uh, two major problems. Uh, to boil the analysis down to its essence, I identify what I think are the two major problems, or to use an even stronger word, two major pathologies in the field. Uh, one has to do with the diversity in the field. The field has spread now to so many places and takes so many shapes and forms that there are people, most people in the field now uh, either are unaware of developments elsewhere. Uh, or uh, are unprepared to give them uh, the benefit of the doubt. Um, the, um, uh, some, some people in the field lament that it's now gotten to a point where, where the field has become chaotic. Uh, there's um, losing sight of the forest for the trees and so on. Uh, the other pathology that I emphasize is the, the lack of uh, concern for making a contribution to, to public policy. Uh, overwhelmingly, the, the work that's done in the field uh, concentrates on either um, trying to explain certain things or to make recommendations or critiques of certain things, um, but not counsel, not uh, there's, a, there's a, a tendency to uh, want to talk to each other in the academic world, rather than talk to policymakers. Uh, there are, of course, uh, the exceptions, but they are exceptions. Um, in, for the most part, in the uh, academic field of IPE, people uh, are writing for one another uh, rather than writing uh, for um, uh, public policymakers. Uh, so I, um, uh, I went through a, an analysis in which I suggested why we have these two pathologies. And then I suggest some measures that might be taken uh, to um, alleviate these pathologies. Uh, I have no um, uh, illusions that I'm going to somehow magically transform the field, but I'm hoping that um, uh, people will uh, uh, give some notice to what I've written and perhaps uh, uh, take at least some of the advice that I'm offering. 
Well, I think I think it's good advice, and we used to joke that uh, there was no politics in political science, which I yeah. think uh, <laughs> yeah. gets a little bit to the 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 point about the relationship with with policy. So, um, for for those out there uh, interested in IPE, and I mean it's it's true. You you mentioned the original group in the '60s and '70s. If you go back to some of the work that was done at that time, whether it was Bob Cohane or Bob Gilpin, I mean I recommended someone to read war, war and change and world politics to think about hegemonic change. And they just said, I just can't believe how broad and sweeping this is. It's so fascinating. And uh, we don't see anything like that anymore. And I said, yeah, that does actually seem to be true. And it's, it's a shame. And uh, I think that what I've read at least of rethinking um, really, really advances that point as well. So it is actually a little inspiring for a younger generation that has seen, you know, maybe some narrowness in the field set in. If I, if I may mention Bob Gilpin's War and Change. Uh, yeah. Uh, around 1970, I was asked by one of, a, a publisher uh, to develop a series of books in this newfangled field called International Political Economy. <laughs> and I uh, took on the role of general editor and I asked Bob, who was a good friend at the time, uh, oh, he was always a good friend, um, I asked him if he'd like to do a book on international investment. He said, fine. He went off. About a year or two later, he came back with a manuscript that was really quite brilliant. The only trouble was it had nothing to do with investment. Uh, <laughs> and I had to, I, I jeopardized our friendship by, by turning down the manuscript. So then he wrote another one called uh, U.S. Power and the Multinational Corporation, which was another brilliant book, uh, which fit perfectly into the series. Um, and then a few years later came War and Change, which was the manuscript that he had originally submitted to. <laughs> uh, so he, he didn't waste the manuscript, uh, but, um, and, our, and our friendship uh, survived. And I, I should mention for listeners, um, both, both of those books are, are absolute classics. War and Change is uh, very much in the uh, the international relations theory canon yes, um, yes. And, and definitely so. well absolutely deservedly so um, for those who have taken a grad seminar or something like that on international relations theory not all IR theory is very interesting to read I can convincedly say that war and change is interesting to read definitely, definitely. But so, All was right, the, with that, so was U.S. power and the multinational corporation. So, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I should I should recommend both. I should recommend both, no doubt. Um, okay, well, Jerry, um, I think uh, that's a good point for us to end. I want to uh, thank you so much for for joining today, and to thank you for being our inaugural guest. Um, I don't. I don't think I mentioned it, but uh, as a token of gratitude, we'll be sending you an official "The World Up Front" coffee mug. <laughs> so I'll have to get. Uh, yeah, and uh, I think maybe with yours, we'll inscribe uh, inaugural guest on it. <laughs> so uh, you can put it up on your on your shelf back there, uh, or something like that. Well, I, I, I thank you for the mug, and I thank you for the invitation, and I wish you the best of luck with your series going forward. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to The World Up Front. If you liked this episode, go ahead and give us a follow or like. We're on all the major social media platforms. And feel free to share this episode and others with friends, family, and anyone who might be interested. Mm-hmm.